Please thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the seas in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their troubled times, and they delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in their congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let them attend to those to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? <laughs> Thank you. One person that's still awake. Um, who went and saw the nine o'clock uh, fireworks last night? A lot of the children. Who went and saw the twelve o'clock fireworks last night? Oh, one brave person. <laughs> we'll pray for you, especially that you'll stay awake uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, it's lovely to see you at church on the first day of uh, the new year. And uh, whether it is a happy new year for you or whether uh, it's an anxious time in your life, uh, what a wonderful privilege it is to be together uh, considering the, the steadfast love of the Lord together. So uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer uh, uh, that God will help us as we ponder his words this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you that your mercies to us are indeed new every morning. And uh, as we start this new year together uh, as a church family, uh, we pray that you would help us to uh, consider uh, your goodness and your kindness and your love towards us. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, help us uh, to trust you you and to trust our Lord Jesus even more deeply uh, this year so that we might live our lives in joyful service of him and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, how much do you value wisdom in your life? Is it something that you seek for yourself? Is it something that you aspire to? Uh, now, I have no data to prove this, but uh, my hunch is that for many Christian people, wisdom is not 
too high on the agenda. Uh, we can often think about wisdom as a bit of an optional extra in the Christian life, a bit like, you know, uh, that sunroof on your new car. You know, it's something that will be nice to have, but it's a little bit costly, and so, you know, we think we can do without it. And so, because many Christians think this way, the Christian life becomes all about, you know, keeping the rules. You know, going to church, for example, or staying away from the gross sins like sexual immorality that the Bible speaks about, rather than seeking to live in wisdom and to make wise decisions in life. Now, is that true of you, I wonder? Is that true of me? But I want to suggest, friends, that the Bible actually doesn't see wisdom in this way. In particular, the Psalms tell us that the wise person is the one who acknowledges God's king and makes decisions in such a way that it leads to eternal life. While the foolish person is the one who says, you know, there is no God, and therefore makes foolish decisions that lead to eternal death. And so, for example, if you turn back to Psalm chapter 2, come with me if you have a Bible, to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 10, Psalm chapter 2, verse 10, uh, you can see there that the kings of the earth are urged to be what? To be wise. And what does wisdom look like? Well, it means acknowledging God's Son in order to live. The opposite of that, of course, is that those who are foolish face the Son's anger and end up perishing eternally. That is, wisdom in the Bible is not an optional extra for Christian people, for God's people. It is actually the way to life itself. Do you have wisdom? Is this something that you aspire to? When was the last time you prayed for wisdom in your life? Well, uh, as uh, Derek mentioned, if you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, every January, uh, as, a, as a church, we look at some of the Psalms and we've been progressively working our way through them. And uh, this year we've reached Book 5, which is the last um, sort of cluster of Psalms in the Old Testament. And uh, today we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 107, uh, which is the first Psalm uh, in Book 5. But the important thing I want you to notice about this Psalm is that right at the end of the Psalm, the author says something very interesting. He says, Those who are wise will be the ones who consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The ones who are wise will be the ones who consider the steadfast love of the Lord. You can see it there in verse 43, can't you? Come uh, all the way to the end of Psalm 107, uh, and you can see there that it says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so, friends, this psalm is really an invitation for the wise to ponder, to ponder what God's love is really like and to show us why that is so important. 
Now you can see this invitation right at the beginning of the psalm, can't you? If you come back uh, with me to verse 1 uh, of the psalm, uh, there is an invitation there to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. And what does God's goodness consist of? Well, it consists of His steadfast love that endures forever. And who is to consider the love of God and respond in this way? Well, in verse 2, it is the redeemed who have been gathered by God from east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Uh, You might know that the idea of redemption uh, is the idea of buying something back. Uh, I don't know whether uh, cash converters um, exist anymore. Does anyone know whether cash converters still exist? Yeah, they do. Yep. Um, But it used to be the case, and uh, no doubt still is the case, that if you need money, uh, you can go to cash converters and uh, give them something uh, that is valuable to you and exchange it for money. And uh, the way it works is that these shops will hold your valuable goods for you so that if you want it back, you can actually pay them uh, some money at a later stage and you can buy back what is, what is yours. Uh, that's the idea of redemption, you see. It's the idea of buying back something that belongs to you. Now, in this psalm, it seems like the redeemed are the people of God who were in exile. Uh, remember that period of the exile when the people of God were uh, uh, in slavery in a foreign land called Babylon? Well, um, what you might remember is that um, after the exile, God actually redeemed his people again. Uh, he gathered them again from the foreign nations so that they might live again in his city of Jerusalem. But I want to say that if you and I are Christian people, then you and I are also people who are redeemed. Uh, we are the people who have been brought back by God to himself by the very precious blood of the Lord Jesus, which is the price that he paid for you and me to be brought back to himself so that we might be gathered, gathered from all the different nations of the earth to be with God in heaven, you see. And so this invitation in Psalm 107 is an invitation for you and me also to ponder the love of God and to give thanks for his goodness. But what is God's love like? It's not immediately obvious what we mean by love these days, isn't it? I mean, uh, when I speak about my love for donuts, uh, it's not exactly the same thing as when I speak about my love for my wife, is it? Or if I speak about my love for football, it's not exactly the same thing as what when I'm speaking about the love I have for my children. You see, uh, love is a term that needs to be clarified. And so what is God's steadfast love really like? Thankfully, uh, this psalm gives us four pictures of what this love is really really like. And you can see them there uh, through the body of the psalm. Uh, Firstly, God's love is a love that satisfies the hungry and thirsty. Uh, If you have a look at verse 4 in Psalm 107, uh, you can see there that there are people wandering around in the desert looking for a city. Uh, you know, cities are places where there is plenty of everything, isn't it? Um, I was recently on long service leave with my family, uh, visiting uh, some of the big cities in Korea. 
And all I can remember is just eating and drinking to, to my heart's content. You see, cities are full of good things that satisfy your hunger and thirst. They are places of plenty. But here, uh, God's people are desperately hungry and thirsty because they are in a desert uh, away from the city. And so what do they do? Well, in verse 6, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and God in His love, we are told, delivers them. In verse 7, He leads them to a city to dwell in where their hunger is satisfied and their thirst quenched. Now, where in Israel's history have we seen this? Turn to the person sitting next to you and have a think about where in uh, the history of Israel have we seen this happen. Just to wake us up a little bit, because I know fireworks were late last night. Um, I'll give you one minute just to think about that. Uh, where was uh, the hunger and thirst of God's people quenched by God uh, in the Old Testament? <clears throat> Okay, that's enough time. Uh, children, you're in this as well, so uh, if you know the answer, throw up your hand. Where in the Old Testament have we seen this in God's people? Yep, Seb, was that a hand up? Oh, you were just stretching. Anyone? The wilderness, yes. Um, who, who called that out? Oh, Susie, the wilderness. Yeah, remember uh, after the Exodus, the, the people of Israel were wandering around, hungry and thirsty in the desert, and God feeds them with manna and with quail uh, before he, he leads them into the promised land where he actually gives them cities that they did not build and wells that they did not dig and, uh, and trees that they did not plant. But it happened again in the, in the exile. Uh, some hundreds of years later, where God rescues his people from captivity once again in Babylon uh, to lead them into their city of Jerusalem. But this hunger and thirst can be more than physical, can't it? And so in verse 9, notice that the psalmist speaks of the longing soul or the hungry and thirsty soul. Have you ever been hungry? and thirsty in the depths of your soul? Have you ever felt in your soul a longing for satisfaction, a longing for what can truly be described as life, but you can't seem to find it because wherever you go, it just seems so empty in the end. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said that this is what we are like when we ignore God. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition or whatever you, you want in life to fulfill you. When infinite joy is offered us, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Friends, what we see here is God telling us that the only thing that can truly satisfy is His love for us. 
But what is the second picture? Well, the second picture shows that God's love is a love that frees the captives. Uh, the picture of captivity that we have here, you know, is not like modern prisons where you have a bed and sanitation and free warm meals a day. Now, notice in verse 10, if you have a look at verse 10, that it's more like a concentration camp. Darkness, death, affliction, iron chains. Of course, again, in the history of Israel, the people of God had experienced these things, hadn't they? They experienced it in Egypt where they were in chains as slaves under the brutality of Pharaoh. They experienced it again in the exile in Babylon where where many of them, especially the elite in the nation of Israel, lived as captives in a foreign land. But again, the scriptures speak of an even greater captivity, which is the captivity of living in sin and being under the condemnation, the rightful condemnation of God himself. You see, friends, we often live under the illusion that we are free people. But the truly free person, according to God, is the one who can stop sinning. Now, can you stop sinning? Thank you, one honest person. (laughs) In that sense, the only truly free person is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scriptures remind us that without God, we are people who are captives of sin and under the condemnation of God. Some of you will know the misery of self-condemnation. You think of yourself as never good enough, never attractive enough, never achieving enough, and you feel trapped and captive and miserable. Is that true? But what is even worse is being captive to sin and living under the condemnation of God. Friends, notice the same pattern here. In verse 13, the people of God cry out to him in their trouble, and God delivers them. In verse 14, he brings them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he bursts their chains so that these captives can go free. You see, the love of God that is described here is a love that frees us from even the most miserable captivity. But if we move on, the third picture we are given in this psalm is a God, is of a God who heals the sick. You can see there that the sick are mentioned in verse 17, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 17. Uh, the people of God there are suffering serious affliction. In verse 18, they loathe any kind of food as they draw near to the gates of death itself. It's a really sad for food is a picture of life. I mean, we've had a taste of it over Christmas, haven't we? Being around with loved ones, enjoying food. There's a reason why the Bible speaks about heaven in terms of a great banquet. But that is when we will enjoy the choicest of foods in a right relationship with God and with each other. But here, the picture is of a people who are so sick and nearing death 
that they can't even stand the sight or feel. Uh, as a pastor, I've visited people on occasion on their deathbed. And one of the most heartbreaking things is watching people who can no longer eat. As people approach the end of their lives, often all they can do is suck on ice cubes that have been given them by the nurse. That's what happens when you are approaching death. It is the opposite of everything that life ought to be about, is it? Now again, this kind of sickness was not unfamiliar to the people of Israel. If you remember, after the Exodus, the people of Israel were struck by plagues for worshipping a golden calf and for grumbling in the wilderness such that many fell dead because of their sins. Similarly, in the exile in Babylon, the, the people of Israel were frequently sick and facing death in a foreign land because of their sins. And so we are reminded, friends, in the scriptures, that sickness and disease is ultimately the result of a much more serious human condition that affects every human soul, which is sin. Of course, not every sickness or disease is the result of particular sins in your life. So we cannot see, say that the sick person is any more sinful than the one who is not sick. But make no mistake, the reason why we get sick and eventually loathe food before we tragically breathe our last breath is because we are those who have rebelled against God and His ways. But again, we see a familiar pattern here, don't we? In verse 19, the people of God cry out to the Lord in their distress and God in His love delivers them. In verse 20, He brings healing to their bodies, and he saves them from destruction. For God's love is the kind of love that brings healing, that brings life to the sick and to the dying. You could even say that God's love is so powerful that it is the kind of love that can bring resurrection to the human body. Now, friends, the final picture of God's love that we are given in this psalm is that of God calming the storm. Uh, in verse 23, you can see people sailing on ships, going about their business. <clears throat> and yet, in verse 25, God sends uh, a great storm and massive waves that toss the ship to and fro like a little cork on the water, such that the people on the boat are seized with great fear. We, we hear in verse 26 that they are so frightened by the danger that their courage melted away. We who are doctors and lawyers and office workers probably don't feel the gravity of this kind of danger, like those who are pastors as well. But there is an old proverb that says, if you don't know how to pray, try going to sea. For it is on the seas that you will see just how small and just how powerless and just how not in control of your life you really are. 
Now, the people of Israel, again, faced this kind of danger in a literal sense. Remember, they stood facing the Red Sea as they faced the danger of Pharaoh's army coming after them. Or think of the exile, which is described in the Old Testament as a time of turmoil, a bit like a, a, a boat tossed in the sea. But more generally, the sea in the Scriptures is actually symbolic of overwhelming evil, overwhelming chaos, overwhelming danger that is a reality in this fallen world. And we know what it is like to live in an unsafe world, don't we? Parents are so often anxious about our children because we know that this is a dangerous world. Many of us are anxious of living in a world where people can harm us, whether it be in a completely random place by a stranger, or in the office, or sadly, even in the home. Each time we turn on the news, we are anxious because we hear of the danger of war, or natural disaster, or plague. Recently, my wife and I uh, went for a walk where we were you know, sharing with each other what we look most forward to in heaven. And my wife turned around to me and she said, I so look forward to not being anxious. Does that resonate with you? Yes, we know the danger that is in our world. But again, there is a familiar pattern in this picture, isn't there? In verse 28, the people cry out to the Lord in their trouble once again, and God delivers them from their distress and the danger they are in. I love the imagery of verse 30 where God brings the storm-tossed ship into the haven of the harbour where there is still water once again. The love of God brings stillness in the midst of the storms of life. So there you have it. Four pictures of God's love. God's love is the kind of love that can satisfy hungry and thirsty souls. It is the kind of love that can free the captive. It is the kind of love that can heal the sick and dying. It is the kind of love that can bring stillness in the midst of the storms of life. But what is it precisely that we learn here from these four pictures? Well, uh, I want to suggest three very quick things. Firstly, we learn that God's steadfast love is a love that is lavished upon sinners. That is, it is completely undeserved, isn't it? I don't know whether you noticed, but in some of these pictures, the reason why God's people are in great distress is because of their flagrant sin against God. And so, for example, in verse 11, the reason why the people are in captivity is because of their rebellion against God and His Word. Or down in verse 17, the reason why people are sick and dying is because of their iniquities and wickedness against God. Now, as I've said, it's not that all the calamities of our life are a result of individual sins in our life. But the picture we get here, here is of a God who extends His love even towards sinners, his enemies, those who have spurned his love when they cry out to him in their distress. 
Secondly, it is clear that the steadfast love of God that this psalm speaks of irresistibly points us to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For what did Jesus do when he came into this world? Well, he satisfied the hungry and thirsty, didn't he, by feeding them bread. Not only by feeding them bread and fish, but by offering water that would well up to eternal life. He freed people from God's condemnation for sin by offering forgiveness of sins. He healed the sick by causing the blind to see and the deaf to hear, and the lame to leap for joy, and even raising the dead to life. And when his disciples were melting in fear in that storm-tossed boat in the Gospels, if you remember, well, he simply said a word to steal the storm. But you see, these things were simply pre- a prelude to the greatest act of love, which is the love displayed by Jesus on that cross, where he died with his arms outstretched to embrace sinners, rebels, people like you and me, who are so undeserving. In our New Testament reading from Romans chapter 5, 8, Verse 8 today, the Apostle Paul says, But God shows his love, his steadfast love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that an extraordinary love? It is the kind of love that dies for people who wanted nothing else. To bring forgiveness and hope and life, not only now but for years. But thirdly and finally, what Psalm 107 teaches us is that the appropriate response to God's love is thankfulness. Did you notice how this is repeated again and again in verse 8? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. In verse 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. In verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. You get the point. And yet here's the thing, friends. True thankfulness to God will always be expressed in costly sacrifices in service of God. Notice in verse 22, very important verse, verse 22, the psalmist says, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, costly sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Now, uh, I think uh, it is very important for us to hear this because we are just coming out of a very tiring and testing period with the COVID-19 years, aren't we? And so I think it would be very tempting for many of us as we enter into a new year to simply scale back our serving of God because, you know, life is so hard 
and we just want to be more happy. I wonder whether that's true for you. But beware, friends, for it is very easy for God's people to simply give lip service to being thankful to God without expressing that thanks in genuine, heartfelt, and costly service of Him. Many of you will know that uh, recently my dear mother was diagnosed with cancer. But uh, one thing that struck me uh, the first time we went in to see an oncologist was that on his desk was a very expensive gift. I noticed it straight away. I won't tell you what the gift was, but believe me, it was a very expensive gift. I'm guessing that it was from a patient whose life had been saved, or at the very least extended, by the expertise of this man. For you see, the costliness of gift shows you something about the gratitude that is felt. But further, notice that true thankfulness is expressed in the midst of God's people. In verse 31, those who have experienced God's steadfast love are urged to do what? Well, they are urged to extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Now, I might be preaching to the choir here, but how much importance do you and I give to praising God in the congregation of His people, which for us is the church? Again, uh, one of the unfortunate things that has resulted from COVID-19 is the growth of a group of people within the Christian community who have come to be known as once-a-monthers. You know, they are the people who only come to church about once a month when it is convenient. Now, I know that there will be times when we can't get to church for good reasons, perhaps when we're sick or when we are on holidays and in need of refreshment or when tragedy strikes in some way. And yet, isn't it true that some of us simply don't come to church because we can't get up in the morning? Or we just can't be bothered because there are other more important things in our lives? Only you can answer that for yourself, but isn't that true sometimes? Friends, let me remind you that one day, you and I will come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You will and I will one day come before the one who has spilt his very own blood, had cruel nails driven through his hands and his feet for us, so that we might be gathered and so that we might praise his name to encourage others and to serve others. And what will you say to him? I couldn't get up in the morning. I couldn't be bothered. I had more important things to do. Friends, do not underestimate the importance of regularly meeting with God's people as a way to serve God in thankfulness. For some of us, 
I suspect that today, God requires great repentance from us on that point. Will we repent of our sin? Will we worship God at costly sacrifices? An indicative of your thankfulness to Him for His steadfast love and mercy. Friends, uh, before we finish looking at this psalm today, there is one thing that is very unexpected in this psalm. The unexpected thing here, I think, is that even though we are reminded of God's steadfast love that endures forever, it is God himself who sends not only the good times, but also the hard times in life. Did you notice that? Uh, You can see it there from verse 33, can't you? Where God turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. And you see it again in verse 34, where he turns fruitful land into a sultry waste. Is this the kind of God that you believe in? Is the kind of God that you know a God who sends calamity as well as good times and blessings? A God who allows awful things to happen in your life, as well as bad things. I take it, friends, that this is why the psalmist urges us to carefully consider the steadfast love of the Lord here. For it is very easy, isn't it, during times of calamity in our lives, to think that God does not love you, and that he does not what this psalm reminds us of is that even the difficult things are things that God sends in our lives and is ultimately an expression of his love for us. Now, theologians often call this the severe mercy of God. The severe mercy of God. Because God sometimes uses calamity and tragedy and hard times in order to humble us to teach us and to make us more like Jesus. You know, sometimes we wish that life didn't hurt so much, don't we? I I think about this multiple times a day. I wish things didn't hurt so much. But God's pain is not our comfort, but our Christ-like. And if it takes hard times in order to do that, that is exactly what God will do for your benefit and for my benefit. And yet remember that it is because He loves us and He wants to prepare us for His eternal kingdom. And so, friends, uh, as we begin 2023 together as a church family, will you and I be wise? Will we be people who will make it a priority to consider the steadfast love of God in our lives? For if you do, if you are a person who has trained yourself to continually consider the steadfast love of the Lord, then you will be able to stand, even during times of calamity and tragedy and hardship in your life, still knowing the comfort of God's love. 
here's the rub. If you will not listen to God and give up considering his steadfast love, if you will be a once-a-monther who only considers God's love when it is convenient, then when the storms of life come at you hard, and trust me, they will come at you hard one day, you may not Father, we thank you so much for the start of a new year, and we thank you for the opportunity to reflect on your steadfast love that endures forever today in your word. And we thank you, Father, that even while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. And we thank you that your love is so immense that it can satisfy the hunger and thirst of our hearts, free us from condemnation, heal us, and ultimately in the resurrection, give us new life and lead us to the safety of our heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are wise as we begin this year together as a church so that we leave room in our lives to regularly ponder your And we pray that not only in the highs, but especially during the lows of life, you would help us to know your love and to know that you are for us and shaping us into the likeness of your Son, preparing us for an eternity with you. We pray these things.